Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Hello everyone and welcome to 1951 Down Place. This is Scott and I'll be joining my co-hosts Casey and Derek to talk about the film on both of their top five hammer lists in the number three position, Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter from 1974. Does this film crack my top five list? You'll have to stay tuned to hear my reaction to my first viewing of this film. Before we get to The Good Captain, I want to make a quick shout-out to Rebecca for her help with our new show intro that you just heard. She was great to work with, and I'd like to thank her for her assistance with our little podcast. We'll talk a little more about that in this episode's wrap-up a little later. Don't forget you can join us discussing these films by looking up the 1951 Downplace group in Facebook. You can give us a call at 765-203-1951 or by sending us email at podcast at 1951downplace.com. So, right after this, Casey, Derek, and I travel to the Klingon homeworld of Kronos to see the mighty warrior himself and his trusty Batleth battle vampires who... What? Sorry, sorry folks, I'm being told that that's not the Kronos that we're dealing with in this film. But maybe now I have an idea for a new story. Hmm... We'll visit the correct Captain Kronos in Old England right after this. Hello there, ladies and good gentlemen. I'm here to talk to you about something very important today. That's outside the cinema. I know a lot of you listening now enjoy the film world. Boy, Outside the Cinema covers all kinds of good films. If you're looking for the classics, perhaps you're looking for a good old Nazi film where the Nazis torture and rape everyone in sight. Or giant monsters crawl from the sea. Or perhaps an Italian film where Edward's finish takes her clothes off for no apparent reason. Or renegade bikers just do whatever they damn well please. Perhaps even occasionally turn into a werewolf. But Outside the Cinema is your place to go. That's www.outsidethecinema.com Outside the Cinema, your source for cult movie discussion. Dear life, hold on to your blood, because your blood is their life, because this is the panic only one man can stop. Captain Cronus, vampire hunter. He lives to destroy the curse. Kill me! To battle the undead. Her youth will pulse through your veins. To bleed the bloodthirsty. You bleed, my lord. At last, horror has met its match. Captain Cronus, vampire hunter, from Paramount Pictures. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. Alan Barnes called this movie basically Blade 30 years before the fact. He's a vampire hunting superhero in a middle European setting. He's Captain Kronos, vampire hunter, and that's what we're talking about this week. 
And I can't wait to get into this film. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's easily one of my favorite movies. Well, Casey and I, we've got it in our top five. It's number three, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I believe so. <laughs> I know we've talked about this on the show before. One of my favorite things about doing this show is kind of sort of being right next to Scott while he's discovering some of these movies on his own for the very first time. And Scott, you'd never seen this, right? That's correct. I had never seen this film. I'd heard about it, and I've heard you guys talk about it, but I had never actually sat down to watch it. Oh, man, it changed your life, didn't it? Uh, no. Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Well, let's talk about the movie. Who wants to do a synopsis? So, essentially... We're back in, uh, oh, like 17, 1800s in England, and we start out with a young woman walking through the woods, and she gets happens to come across a man in a dark cloak with a hood who sneaks up behind her. Next thing you know, she screams while looking lovingly up into the depths of the black hood. And then when she's found later, she is now aged to a very old woman and very lifeless. And that's where we start. And then we get introduced to... Captain Kronos himself that the movie's named after, um, and his sidekick, the Professor, whose name is escaping me at the moment. That would be Professor Hieronymus Grost. Yeah, there you go. Grost. Yes. <laughs> they, uh, they ride into town, and they run into Dr. Marcus, who is uh, someone I know, I believe they knew from the Army days, or when Captain Kronos was actually in the Army. And can, I, can I interrupt there real quick? Before we meet Marcus, we meet Carla. Oh, yes. Carolyn Monroe. Oh, How could yeah. I forget? Yeah, dude, what's wrong with you? <laughs> they come across, he just happens to come across a woman uh, locked in stocks on the trail in the middle of the woods. And as uh, any swashbuckling hero would do, he cut her loose and said, Hop aboard, and away they rode off into the sunset. <laughs> yeah, wasn't she locked up for like dancing on Sunday? Yes. I think so. She just loves to dance, and she was dancing on a Sunday. And, you know, it's, it's played up so. Well, Casey and I, when you and I were talking about it, uh, we talked about how it was so campy. It was this kind of swashbuckling camp kind of, he takes the sword, what's he going to do? And He just frees her without a word and moves on. It's great. Uh, there's a lot of moments like that comes up between uh, Kronos and Carolyn Monroe. Yeah. <laughs> throughout the movie. And they run in. They eventually meet up with Doctor Marcus, who explains to them that they have a problem with these women that are get, coming up aged and dying, and there's no explanation. To which, without any hesitation whatsoever, Captain Kronos and uh, Professor Gross just say, "Oh, it's vampires." And from there on, really, the movie is essentially them setting up, preparing to clear this area of their vampire problem and figure out where the vampire is, who it is, and to take and to essentially kill them because that's what they do. Kind of a short and sweet breakdown, but yeah, that's basically it. There, there's not a huge in-depth story here. We say that that's short and sweet because really it is, but in a lot of ways I would consider this more of an adventure movie than a horror movie because it's all about swashbuckling and bravado and less about the horror. The time in which this film was made uh we're talking 72 i believe hammer you know was now competing with the new horror market or at that time the new horror market uh their heaving bosoms their blood things like that wasn't quite enough to sell anymore so i felt like chronos is very i don't know if experimental is the word for it 
it doesn't go down the same path as like the other vampire films, the Dracula saga or the Karnstein films, which had just wrapped up before this film. So it right. doesn't have that same kind of focus on the vampire characters and, and focus on the horror and the gothic and all that. It's more of a, an adventure, straight-up superhero. Well, like Harlan Barnes in that documentary I mentioned at the very beginning of this, he's Blade. He's a superhero. We can get into this in more in depth here in a bit. but And like you said, it's a, it's a departure from the – from the you know the vampire movies they've been doing and whatnot, but really the reason I like this because if you look at the time that it was filmed, it really kind of sets the vampire genre on its ear. They're doing a lot of things different than most any other vampire movie had ever done before that, mm-hmm. because they bring in the idea that there's separate species of vampires, different ways to kill vampires and whatnot. That makes it a lot different than anything else that was out at the time. It's handled in a, a clever way. I felt that you bring in these different. Rules for vampires, different species, different ways to kill them. And I love the scene where she addresses that in the film. The tone, the whole sequence. I mean, these are all brand new things that had never been done uh, in in a bigger movie like that, if at all. But to me, it didn't feel out of place. It's not like, you know, today when you start having vampires sparkle in a movie, everybody gets upset. These deviations in the rules of vampirism seem to work in the context of this film. And it was fun. What about you, Scott? What did you think about the changes to the whole vampire lore? Easily the best part of the film. Um, <laughs> I, I, I loved the idea. I mean, obviously, this film was set up to be the beginning of multiple films. And the idea of uh, Gross's character knowing, I think as Captain Kronos puts it, everything he doesn't know about vampirism would fit in the codpiece of a flea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I love that line. The gross character knowing everything about vampires. I, I liked the fact that they had these different vampires and not only did they have to find out what rules applied to the different vampires, they also had to figure out, okay, I've got this type of vampire. What kills him? Because they're not always afraid of crosses or they're not always die when you put a stake through their heart. You've got to basically kind of experiment, go a little CSI on them to try to figure out how to kill them. And I, I thought that was a very interesting twist on the whole vampire. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think it's a, a definite selling point, but I also wonder if it was part of the film's downfall, and I suppose we'll talk about that here in a bit, too. But yeah, briefly, this film didn't do too well. And uh, it just it took a long time to find an audience, and well, we'll get into that. Uh, you mentioned that it was obviously set up to be part of a series, and that, that's right. I mean, it feels like, as Dennis Meikle puts it in A History of Horrors, a pilot film. It was supposed to start a a bigger saga, a bigger cycle of of Kronos movies. Depending on which resource you look at, the director and writer Brian Clemens will say either he wanted to do six stories or eight stories. He had a whole series of them. He also talks a little bit about what Kronos was supposed to be and why he was named Kronos to begin with. Kronos being the Greek word for time. And at one point, Clemens wanted to make this a time-traveling vampire hunter in that (laughs) – the series of films would feature him in a golden carriage or a golden coach in any different time period where vampires might be. He'd just show up and start taking out the vampires. I, I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> so in other words, the guy is essentially thinking this out as being the uh, Doctor Who of vampire stories. You know, given where he came from, given – I mean this is a UK production and you know it's the 70s and Doctor Who's a thing now and Clemens is primarily a TV guy anyway working on like, the Avengers and things like that. I couldn't help but think he wanted a vampire hunting Doctor Who. Yeah. 
I don't think that would have worked at all. I'm glad he didn't go that far. Yeah, as much as I love this movie, I can't see it carrying on through eight different movies. And the time traveling thing would have made it just too weird. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mind eight different films, but yeah, not you know, set in this setting, not traveling through time and and all that. You know, if you could come up with eight different types of vampires that followed eight different rules, it would be yeah. interesting. I mean, if he if he went out in the next film, there was another vampire that was draining life out of young girls. I don't know if it would have been as good. You you would have to have the different styles and challenging the audience to try to figure out, okay, what kind of vampire is this along with your characters? I think that might have been a way to go to, to continue this on to in more movies. Well, and we know that there are some vampires that die by hanging and there are some vampires that die by saying, you know, can, can we talk about that scene real quick? Sure. <laughs> so we haven't really talked too much about the cast, uh, but one of our main characters, Dr. Marcus, played by John Carson, he's a hammer semi-regular he's been in some other hammer films including i believe uh the plague of the zombies he was easily my favorite male character in the film oh he's great yeah he's he was really awesome. good in this yeah uh but yeah he plays dr marcus he's Cronus's old buddy he's kind of the one that called him to town is it established that he called for Cronus? yeah he sent him a letter yeah okay yeah. Before Marcus finally succumbs there is one scene that i absolutely love in the film Cronus, played by horse Janssen, is in town while Horst, uh, played by John Cater and Carla by Carolyn Monroe, are out doing the tour in the whole scene. And, and Marcus kind of sort of implies that Cronus is just kind of sitting around waiting, not doing anything. And Cronus is explaining that, you know, that doesn't make any sense for me to go rushing off into battle. I'm sitting here doing my thing while they're out doing their thing. And Marcus says, don't get me wrong, Cronus. I know you've got guts. I've seen them. Yes. And you can tell there's this history between the two. And I love that moment. Never rush into a battle unprepared. Remember, the war taught us that, if nothing else. There's a time to think, time to plan, and a time to act. And that time will come soon enough. Don't worry. See, my needlework is held good. Mm. I know you've got guts, Cronus. I've seen He's also looking at that giant scar that's on Kronos' well, yeah. belly. Yeah. There's that too. But anyway, uh, later on in the film, Marcus becomes one of the undead, one of the vampires. And in order to figure out how to kill this breed of vampire, Kronos <laughs> and, and Grost torture <laughs> poor Dr. Marcus trying to figure out how to, to off him. And of course, Marcus is playing along. I mean, he's not, you know, struggling. He's like, he knows this is what's got to be done and I'm a vampire and my buddy's going to take care of me in the end anyway. But they try to stake him. <laughs> they hang yeah. him. Uh, they're going to go burn him. I mean, I love this this scene. This is kind of borderline goofy for me, but I loved it. <laughs> it is fairly goofy, but at the same time, though, they didn't cheap out and do it like you know, like you would like a musical montage in an '80s flick or something like that. It's actually fairly drawn out. It just keeps going and going. <laughs> yep. And it's fairly, you know, they've got they've got effects set on everything. Yeah, you know, you see him driving the stakes in. You see him pulling the <laughs> they got him strapped to a tied to a giant wooden chair that they're hoisting up into the air. <laughs> I love that too. Well, the stake goes under there's that kind of sound, but when they hang him, it's all done with shadow. <laughs> yeah. And you just see the feet kind of dangling when they do show him. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, well, you see the feet in what has to be at least a 150 pound wooden chair dangling. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. It's a, it's a good thing he was a vampire because that would have killed him flat. <laughs> when I said earlier that reminded me a little of CSI, that's that's the scene I was referring to because they're, they're doing all these experiments on how to try to kill him. <laughs> yep. And, and the whole time, uh, Carl is watching from outside while one of the villagers is peering through a window watching this horrible thing happening. And <laughs> I, I almost expected Carla to go up to this guy. It's like, there's nothing to see here. You know, put his yeah. her arm around him and walk him away because she knows this is going to be problems later, uh, trouble later. And it, it does turn up to be trouble later because the villagers are not too happy that Kronos and his buddy, quote unquote, killed Dr. Marcus. Well, it was funny too, though, because she could tell that he was, that guy was obviously getting upset and suspicious about what was going on, but she didn't really seem to be bothered by it all. Yeah, she seemed pretty nonplussed <laughs> by the the whole thing. At one point, <laughs> when when she becomes aware, or at least is first told, we're vampire hunters. Oh, okay. Yeah. She just kind of goes along with it. And I'm curious, Scott, is this kind of where some of your problems with the film come from, or what, what are your issues with the movie? That's one of the problems. Okay. Actually, her whole entire character is a problem for me. Oh, come on now. It's Caroline Monroe. Well... <laughs> She Come was great on. to look at, but what did she add to the story besides the very end that they could have grabbed Oops. somebody off the street at the very end to, to do that? What did she add to the story? Carolyn Monroe. <laughs> it's the eyes, man. Look at those eyes. If you were <laughs> reading this in a book, what did she add to the story? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, you, you bring up a really good question, and we'll talk about this, I suppose. There is a book. Uh, by Guy Adams, just published as Kronos. It was published last year by Hammer. Hammer is slowly starting to get into doing novels, novelizations based on some of their films, things like that. And Guy Adams is contracted to do three films, Kronos being the first adaptation. And in it, Carla is a hell of a lot more suspicious of what's going on. And she is one of the viewpoint characters, one of many. And I, I really had a problem with the book, actually, because of that. But uh, no, I, I see your point. Uh, Carla does not really contribute much in terms of story action. But then I don't know how different that is than, say, a lot of the leading ladies of the Bond films, you know, especially of this time. And, and Monroe was a Bond girl, you know, and she was in two Bond films. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but given that it's a Hammer film and they're kind of coming out of the Ingrid Pitt-ish era, <laughs> I feel like they had to have a woman – a female character in the in the film as one of the leads. Well, this was filmed in '72, so we're getting to where Hammer and then their place in the horror world is getting kind of long in the tooth, so to speak. But it was before that. That's kind of what they were known for. Yeah, obviously, was having the the buxom ladies in their in their movies and whatnot. So I think this was just their attempt. It was a ham handed attempt to make sure that they get that in there. And they kind of shoehorned her, her this character in there to make sure that you know, oh well, we got Carolyn Monroe wants to do this, so we're just going to throw this character in there, and then it was just kind of there. Well, she, her character was originally written to be a little bit more feisty, a little fiery gypsy character, and Carolyn Monroe. This was one of her first acting roles, or at least leading roles, and she wasn't very good at it. And she and Clemens uh, worked to make sure. Uh, that the character was uh, kind of rewritten and, and played more to her strengths as an actress. Uh, up until this point, Monroe was most known for doing a series of ads for something called Lamb's Navy Rum, uh, which if you can track down some of these old uh, ads that she's done as a model, 
It's Carolyn Monroe, man. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, that's one of the problems that uh, Dennis Meikle brings up in A History of Horrors. Uh, he says about the film, there's no horror to speak of, no sex that had not already been exploited by Miss Monroe's widespread exposure on behalf of Lamb's Navy Rum. So we had already kind of – the audiences of the time had already seen her in these incredibly sexy ads. So it might have been you know, she didn't bring enough to the table that people haven't already seen. I don't know. I, I like her in the movie and I like that she gives Captain Kronos a character to play off of. I think without her, we wouldn't have learned anything about his background. Yeah, obviously this it's small, but that's the only real point that she does play is to give us that avenue to uh, expand on his history. So they have somebody that can ask questions, even though they don't actually show her asking the questions. They just show them going ahead and explaining stuff to her, right? Which is a fault, which is you know definitely a fault and a problem there. But that, I mean, that's what she's there for. That, like I said, that was one issue I had, and the other one is. I could not stand Horse Jansen. All right. <laughs> let's, 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 let's talk about Horse. Let's talk about Mr. Jansen here. You know his voice was dubbed, right? I think I'd read that, yes. Yeah. So he's a German actor and very successful, very popular <laughs> German actor. And Clemens and he worked really hard with his voice to make sure he wasn't overly accented. Although I think an accented Captain Cronus would have been just fine. It would have added to the alienness of his character coming in and doing what he needed to do. But his uh, voice was ultimately uh, dubbed by uh, an actor by the name of Julian Holloway, who does not get credit in the film. It took me years to realize his voice was uh, dubbed. And even now when I watch the movie, I I have a hard time because I feel like the dub job was very well done. It doesn't feel off to me. That's not the issue that I had with him. Okay. <laughs> uh, he hardly ever showed any emotion. He was too clean and perfect for someone that was traveling the countryside and living in the back of a horse-drawn carriage. Perfect teeth, perfect hair. He wasn't gritty enough for me to fit that type of job that he was doing. Well, you didn't get to see all the scenes where uh, Gross was like doing the laundry. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and brushing his hair before he went to sleep at night. You know, you didn't see. Yeah. Because remember, Captain Cronus had to conserve his energy. So he wasn't doing any of the gritty stuff. <laughs> That's what Gross was there for. <laughs> if, if I was going to make this film, I would combine those two characters. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I could see that. See, I really like Gross, though, as a standalone guy. I really like him. I, I like, like him, him, too. I like him, too. But he, since he knows everything, I mean,. He's basically Van Helsing. Yeah. And yeah. You, you, you combine those two, you've got Van Helsing. Well, you know, and you could go, if you wanted to theorize on this, you could even make the extension that the only reason that Kronos uh, is there is because Grost has his physical handicap because he's a hunchback in the movie. He's got that handicap and he can't physically fight them as well. So he brought it, you could theorize that he brought in Kronos to do that for him because he's obviously the expert. So really, this movie is about Gross going around killing vampires, and he's just got a guy with a sword who does it with him. <laughs> he's, I, I can see that. I can see this whole story told from Gross' point of view. I like it. Yeah. Well, let let me throw you this thought that I had about the film while watching it. Is Kronos a vampire? You know, they make a mention that he got bit and survived a bite at one point. And he has right. incredible reflexes. He's got incredible beauty. Did Grossed save him, and now he's basically a trained vampire for Grossed. 
Well, and you think about it too. Um, if it was, I'm sorry, you got me all excited now. If that's one. <laughs> that's another reason that if they wanted to do more movies, this could have worked because that could have been something that they explored in you know, like the third movie. They could have gone back and time back to when he was bitten and see what happens because it's very possible. And if you look at it in the framework of Blade, like Derek brought out that comparison at the beginning, Blade was part vampire yep. too and was turned there, so it's not unheard of. And there's a scene in Kronos with he and Carla, and he bit Carla's lip. I hadn't thought about it, but uh, I think you're absolutely right. There is an argument to be made here, and uh, the Blade comparison is so apt here. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, if Kronos has a little bit of vampire blood flowing through his veins, is that even possible? <laughs> if he's got a little bit of vampire in him, that explains so much more about Kronos's uh, superhuman abilities. Uh, Outside the Cinema recently covered Captain Kronos and, and said that the film basically treats him like he's a fucking medieval Batman. And uh, <laughs> he, he kind of is. I mean, he's, yeah. he's got this incredibly wound up body just ready to strike. You know, there are a few times that it's played up a little jokey when Captain Kronos will move so fast, by the time the camera gets to the shot, he's already gone, but the handkerchief that was wrapped around his head is falling, and Carla falls to the ground because she was laying on his lap or whatever. There are some things that he does that are so incredibly quick. The scene in the bar? Yes. Yeah. Which I know is played for kind of jokes and laughs and whatever, but I kind of like it. (laughs) That one I had a good chuckle out of, too, because there was this big scene in there. He's facing off against these uh, bandits and whatnot in the bar, and then... His first reaction is to call them fatty, rat face, and I don't remember the Big other mouth. <laughs> Big mouth. Big mouth. It's like, ooh. Make sport of a physical affliction is both impolite and cruel. After all, I wouldn't dream of calling you rat face. Fatty. Or Big mouth. <laughs> now, see, I can see where Scott, where you're coming from, Scott, with those with those issues about the character. But to me, I never had those issues because I came into this movie ex- expecting essentially like a pirate swashbuckling movie. Yes, and a lot of times there's a character that's like that that's pretty much above all all the rest. So while you know you we keep making that comparison to Blade, and obviously you know there's Blade was made decades after Captain Cronus, but I think it drew a lot of influence from that. Technically, I'd seen Blade before I'd saw Captain Cronus, but it was pretty easy to think of him as a medieval superhero for me. Mm-hmm. And with that in mind, you'd expect him to be clean, extremely lucky, everything goes his way. You know, uh, Clemens talks a lot about this film. I mean, he, he's done many interviews and DVD commentary on the DVD and, and such. Back in 1980, there was an article in Fangoria magazine. And uh, I'd like to read just a, a short bit from this because this is applicable to what Scott was saying. He likes Janssen a lot because Janssen, unlike a lot of actors at the time, when you ask him, can you ride a horse? He said yes, and he meant it. Can you use a sword? He said yes, and he meant it. Because a lot of times actors and actresses will say whatever they can say to get the part. Janssen delivered. He did all his own stunts. You know, the, the sword fight at the end, he worked so hard to make that work and, and worked with the choreographers to make that look as good as it could. So Janssen, you know, he did what he said he could do, which is to be admired, I feel like. And, and Clemens also says he never bitched about it. You know, he always just did what needed to be done. However... Clemens adds to this interview, I think he was miscast. He lacks charisma, something for the kids to go for. Some people can project sexuality and some can't. Horst couldn't. 
The other thing was that despite his perfect English, he lacked the sense of humor Captain Cronus should have had. It should have been much more in a performance like Errol Flynn's and Robin Hood, rambunctious and swashbuckling. So, I mean, I hear what Scott's saying. Uh, I agree with him. I agree a little bit with Clemens. But my takeaway from it is that Kronos is kind of like the King Arthur of the film. You know, he's perfect. He's without fault. And he surrounds himself with other people, Dr. Marcus, Gross, Carla, to serve as kind of like a, a surrogate for the different aspects of the personality of somebody who would be a well-rounded character if they were all one. You know, Gross is the brain. So Kronos doesn't have to be that. Gross can be the, the CSI type. You know, Marcus can be the doctor with the medical knowledge and, and the concern for the village. So Kronos doesn't have to do that because he's got Dr. Marcus doing it for him. Carla is the sexuality. So Kronos doesn't have to have that because he's got Carla doing that for him. You know, whereas if you look at a film like Excalibur, for example, King Arthur doesn't have to be anything but a king because he's got Lancelot to be the heart and Percival to be this and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, that's the takeaway that I take from it is that while Kronos himself might not work as the leading man, sexy swashbuckler type, he surrounded himself with all these uh, emotional surrogates that he didn't need to be. And it's something interesting in the article you mentioned in that the, he was saying that Kronos should have been like uh, the Errol Flynn, Robin Hood, stuff like that. And really, you see a lot of that engrossed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even when Gross has to get a little physical, like at the very end of the film when they're seeking around uh, the doorway to state, and Gross has to come in through the window behind him, I couldn't help but feel like Gross was enjoying it. You know, he's <laughs> like, ah, yeah. you know. Well, there's that, and there's a, you know, and he was the he was our source of humor throughout the movie too. He had a lot of little one-liners and joke quips and stuff like that throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And Gross was played by John Cater, who Scott, you mentioned the Van Helsing comparison. Uh, there are a lot of people who have commented uh, in the interviews and such that I've read that Cater was very Cushing-like in the in the production of the film. Oh, I definitely agree with that. Uh, yeah, that he was always stealing the scene. He was always fiddling with stuff. Whenever he's on the screen or part of a scene, he's the one you're watching because you know, he's just that good. John Cater was awesome in this film. Oh, yeah, he, w- he definitely, when he was on the screen, both him and uh, John Carlson as Dr. Marcus are the ones that I was paying attention to. I mean, it was easy to ignore Kronos because he most of the time was just standing there. I play chess. And I have a bottle of very good wine tucked away for a rainy day. That was uh, Dr. Marcus, right? Yes. Uh, I like him a lot. Like I said, he's in The Plague of the Zombies, which is another one of my top five Hammer films. So he's a really fun, uh, not fun, but a really interesting character to watch because I want to know more about him and Kronos, you know, what they did in the war together. Yeah. You know, I want to know more about that story, but I don't want to go time traveling with Kronos. So I guess I will just let it go. I think another <laughs> thing for me that enabled me to overlook the problems with horse. Chanson and his portrayal of uh, Kronos is, you know, you see Captain Kronos and he's wearing all this finery and his big cape and stuff like that. To, for, so for me, I think it immediately put me in the mindset of he was like a noble. It didn't at one point he said that he would bleed blue blood? I think there's a, a point of contention there, though, because Kronos will say something like that, but then when Gross gives him the sword at the end and... Kronos! A sword fit for a king. Or a Kronos. Is he really a king or does he just call himself royalty and it's a little yeah. in-joke between the two of them? But at the same time, though, he kind of carries himself as an aristocrat. And if you think about it in that period that they were 
going for in this movie, it was uh, aristocrats acted like that. They're yeah. very aloof and they are very full of themselves and they, you know, they are very much about letting everybody else do the hard work for them and they show up when it's time to look important. So it kind of fit in with that aspect of it too. Then mm-hmm. I'll ask you to explain Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the whole point of Robin Hood though, is that he wasn't like that. That's what made it a story because he was going out. To- didn't he come from an aristocratic family? Yes, but he was. He actually didn't. He rejected all of that. I know that's what makes that what that's what makes Robin Hood a good story. That's what makes Robin Hood a story, the story that it is. Because if it was just about another aristocrat running around, robbing other aristocrats, you know, still being all full of himself and aloof, it wouldn't be as exciting. That's what made Robin Hood entertaining because he said the hell with all of that and threw it away. Kronos, obviously. I think with the way Cronus walks around carrying himself, that he didn't throw any of that aristocrat background, you know, to the wind and whatnot. He was still pretty into the mindset of, yeah, I'm pretty badass and noble. So, and to hear us further talk about Robin Hood films, all you've got to do is go to the Facebook page <laughs> and tell us that you want us to cover one of the Hammer's Robin Hood films in our poll for what we're going to cover later this year. <laughs> <laughs> But I can totally uh, agree with both of you, though. Uh, there's uh, an edge that Kronos has that uh, Robin Hood gleefully wore away. Yeah. There, there's not a sense of glee or joy behind a lot of what Kronos is doing in the film. If it was a Robin Hood-type character, I don't know. I mean, I get accused of not having a sense of humor and not liking things too light uh, over like on Mail Order Zombie and elsewhere. And I don't know if I would want Kronos to be kind of – Aha, you know, kind of, kind of the jokey light kind of vibe. Although everybody involved in the film seems to think that they were making a parody or a satire or a humor film of some sort. So who knows? Well, I don't care if he would have done that. I just wish he would have shown some emotion, whatever emotion he wants to show. Yeah. That's, that's one issue I have. Even if he's just doing this out of a sense of duty to, to rid the, scourge of vampirism from the land i mean he doesn't even say that he doesn't you don't see that as a desire or anything he's just there yep <laughs> that's funny though too because i mean i fully agree with you he didn't show any emotion i think the high the high point of Cronus's emotion was when he uttered my favorite line of the entire movie when they were getting close to the end and uh, carol monroe says uh, he asked her what she's going to do when they split up or whatever and she says oh well i've decided i'm going to stay with you guys if you'll have me and he looks at her and says oh i'll have you i suppose you'll be moving on now no i'm staying if you'll have me oh i'll have you I think that was the highest point of emotion that the character showed through the entire movie. <laughs> yes, and, uh, yeah. And and I it was disturbing because I could tell exactly when Casey was watching this film to talk about on the show because <laughs> he texted me that very line on my phone. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Thanks, Casey. <laughs> this is the most overt and hilarious line of the entire movie. <laughs> oh, I'll have you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we mentioned Peter Cushing earlier, and I wanted to talk about the Durwids uh, in the movie because uh, genre historian Jonathan Southcott in the DVD commentary refers to Shane Bryant, who played Paul Durwood or Durward. Is it Durwood or Durward? Durward. Durward. He refers to Paul Durward. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> he refers to Shane Bryant as Paul Durward as somebody that was trying to be built up as the next Peter Cushing. Uh, Shane Bryant would also appear in the last Frankenstein film with Peter Cushing, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. 
he is now a novelist, a horror novelist, I believe. I don't know if I really got Peter Cushing out of this character in this film. Nah. No. He just kind of stands around and seems pretty ineffectual to me. Yeah. He seemed creepy to me. Yeah, kind of that creepy. He's probably watching his sister do stuff he shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> that, yeah. You know? <laughs> That's exactly the creepiness I was thinking. That, yeah. <laughs> although the sister, uh, Sarah, played by Lois Dane, I did kind of like her. Oh, maybe because... I don't know. She had that kind of tomboyish thing going on. And I mean, she was wearing pants instead of a dress and had this short haircut. And I liked her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, she also was afraid of getting old. My dear sir, you look lovelier than ever and younger. What's your secret? Well, she's not exactly an aged crone, you know. Nor ever will be. Crone is such an ugly word, don't you think? Such an ugly thing to be. No, I don't think I shall ever be one. Am I unwell, Doctor? You study me so closely, I thought perhaps you could detect some malady in my face. Now your face is perfect. Magically perfect. Magic? I notice it more this time because this is, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie now, but these characters were introduced as kind of like a red herring. You know, are they the ones responsible for what's going on? And it felt a little heavy-handed when, you know, Dr. Marcus finds them reading a book on witchcraft and necromancy in their home or they're talking about how they don't want to be old and how horrible that would be. It felt like it was, <laughs> the brush was a little thick, you know, <laughs> laying that on the table for us to maybe think they were the ones responsible. Well, as someone watching it for the first time, I obviously that's who I thought it was was the 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 daughter which yeah. is what I was supposed to think. When I re- first rewatched this for this show, it's been probably five years or so since I seen it last, and even I was foggy on how it turned out from the first time I watched it. So you know, it was still somewhat effective, and they did the nice job of when we first get introduced to that to the Durward family at the at their father's grave, and it's just the son, and then there is the person in the back. Which wearing what is pretty obviously a mask. Yeah, that was pretty. Yeah, that which in the way that they did the mask and stuff, it was pretty horrible because you couldn't tell if it was supposed to look like they're super old if they're supposed to be wearing a mask and whatnot. But then at the same time, it was effective because later on, when we start seeing red herring show up, we're not sure who it was we seen because she fit the uh, the frame the body of the person we saw in the back of the carriage and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it was very believable that it could have been. Well, even at the very beginning of this show, when you were talking about the synopsis of the film, you said it was a man running around in a black you know, hood. It could have easily been a woman. I mean, it, it, yeah. there's really not enough to really go off of there. I don't, maybe it's because I knew it was coming. Maybe that speaks to the rewatchability of the film. I don't know. But I felt it was a little heavy-handed. It's definitely heavy-handed, but I mean, at the same time, it's still effective. But I think everything in this movie is fairly heavy-handed. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, pretty much all of it's over the top. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in your face in a lot of spots. And I, I didn't like this moment. When Dr. Marcus has turned, nature stops. They do a lot of the freeze frames with oh, the water yes. flowing. And I, you know, I mean, I, I guess I get it. You know, Marcus's world has suddenly ceased and then begun again. I, I It felt a little much to me. I didn't like that moment. But there are a lot of other moments in this film that I really like. I love the direction. And I wish Clemens would have gone on to direct more. 
Uh, this was the only film he directed for Hammer. Uh, because it didn't do too well, I'm sure it was probably never going to go anywhere and he would never direct again for them. He was a TV guy anyway, so he, it's not like he lost a career out of the deal. But I love his direction in this. I think there are some very interesting visual moments. Uh, there's a moment in the church specifically is coming to mind for me right now when – uh, a, a girl who's soon to be a victim to the vampire is in the church and there's this this slow shot where the camera's moving back and you see the cross in the foreground and the shadow of the cross on the wall, you know, on the other side of the building. But then the shadow moves because it's not a cross. You know, yes. it's somebody standing there waiting, just standing with his arms out and then they come down and then he approaches. I, I loved that moment. Uh, there are some interesting shots with the mirror at the very beginning of the film. Where the the girl is using a handheld mirror to like pretty herself up and do whatever hammer girls do in these films, and there are a lot of shots of over her shoulder where we see the action through what's being revealed in the handheld mirror. We see her, I believe, we even see her get attacked or or, or taken because uh, uh, through the viewpoint of the mirror, don't we? That the mirror falls to yep. the ground and yep. you're able to see the reflection of that. Oh, by the way, these vampires have reflections. Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I really like the direction. There's some some wonderful shots where there's like a bloody hand in the foreground. You know, <laughs> there's some things happening in the background. Uh, I think Clemens did a really good job. He talks about how he, he wanted to be very Hitchcockian in his approach in that he drew everything. He storyboarded the hell out of this movie. Although over the years, he's kind of increased the number of storyboards that he did. Back in 1980, he told Fangoria Magazine he did 998 drawings. He was very specific. But then in the DVD commentary, he says he did over 1,300. Wow. I've seen some of them, and they are a little more than just you know stick figures with bubble heads and a couple of bubbles on the chest of his Carlos character. <laughs> um, so, I mean, they're not overly in-depth, but, I mean, he pretty much made this movie in his head on paper before he started rolling. And he talks about how there were no scenes that were cut. You know, everything was done as efficiently as possible, more so than he probably wanted them to because he was told he had so much time to shoot, like, the final sequence, the sword fight, but then was told after they got started, okay, uh, you only have a couple days. You know, so uh, hurry it up. We got to move you guys out and bring another movie in that's going to shoot the same scene or the same set. So he had to kind of be quicker than he probably would have wanted to, but because he had drawn somewhere between 998 and 1,300 drawings – you know, he was able to kind of get it done. And I just think he had a very interesting visual language in this film that as much as everything else is new in this movie when it comes to Hammer Vampires, I felt like his direction was a breath of fresh air. I really liked it. Talking about the shots, there was several shots in the woods area that it was basically from the vampire's point of view. You're watching them stalk their victim that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Like you were looking through trees and there was one shot that I remember that you were actually looking through a tree that looked like it had been split. It just, yeah. Yeah. just some of the some of those shots really stuck with me that I thought they were really well done. I liked a lot of the shots too that they showed of the uh of the graveyard because it was like on the top of a hill and they had all those giant crosses and stuff and there's quite there's a couple different times they went back to the shot of, uh, pulled away from that hill and from a distance. So you just saw like the little forest of crosses across the top of the hill. It was pretty entertaining. Uh, Ian Wilson was the cinematographer on the film. And I think between his work, uh, the production design, the direction, this movie really stands out. There were a couple comparisons in the DVD commentary that uh, Clemens made to John Ford films. And there's a lot of talk about how this kind of has some Western elements. Uh, in a new book that just came out, 
called Midnight Marquee Studio Series Hammer. Uh, there's a, an article in here by Dennis Fisher that he talks about how this film feels very Sergei Leone. Uh, there's a lot of Western influence to the film. And I can see that, especially in terms of the shot setup, a lot of things through windows. A lot of things are framed by something on the screen, which is a very John Ford kind of thing to do. Uh, there's one scene in the graveyard where we're looking through uh, maybe uh, – it's not like a window, but uh, an area where there's a church bell kind of hanging down in, in the middle of it. And the church bell is swinging back and forth, and we're watching the action through that little opening. Really enjoyed that kind of stuff, too. Overall, I like the movie, and I don't care what Scott says. <laughs> <laughs> I love the music. The music. The music is so over the top. <laughs> now, I've For never two said and a half minutes, <laughs> the music is playing over the opening credits, and it's this triumphant, da 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 you know, it's, I loved it. <laughs> Laurie Johnson was the composer. He had worked with uh, Brian Clemens on uh, television quite a bit. Uh, Clemens referred to him as his partner a few times. And, and really, I think without the music, Kronos would have fell pretty flat for me. The music kind of adds that touch to make it nice hey. for me. So, anyway, yeah. Scott, Scott, you were saying something. I didn't mean to start rambling about music. I never said I disliked the film. <laughs> <laughs> But if it's not one of your top fives, man, somehow I feel like I failed you. I'm, I'm sorry. It's not <laughs> going to replace one of my top fives. Ah, no. No, I no. it's got a lot of flots. Flots? What the hell is that? <laughs> flaws and faults. Okay. It's got, a lot go. of, it's got a lot of flaws. <laughs> I'll give it that. Some of the special effects don't work. Uh, the, the bar scene, for example, I didn't like the shot of his hand coming out with the sword and then kind of re I, I just didn't like how that scene ended in terms of the effects. I, I've got a question about the bar scene that, that's been troubling me ever since I saw it. When they show the bar scene, there's a couple of uh, shots where you see people coming in the bar through the window and sitting next to the window, there's a woman there blindfolded. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Why? What does that have to do with anything? Well, she was blind. And she was thirsty. <laughs> I, I thought that yeah. was really odd. I I played the commentary track back again because I thought I missed something because I was hoping Clemens would address this. And all he says is that he would imagine that back then in the 19th century or whenever, if somebody had suffered a traumatic eye injury and had lost their eye, they wouldn't you know, just have a gauze patch over their eye. They might have an eye patch, but if it was a young lady, she might do something a little bit more feminine, like just having this strip of fabric wrapped around her face because it looks better. That's not pretty much all he said. Wow. There's, there's no reason that she's there. She's <laughs> just background. She's the extra that had an eye problem. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I know and they shot that so prominently, and then it looked so, I don't know, so, like, elaborate as far as the setup that you'd think it would have pulled into something. Yeah, I kept expecting her to be like, well, I didn't see the coach of the, the wagon, Captain Kronos, but I heard them. You know, something, you know? Well, I was thinking it was Sarah. That somehow ah. that somehow she, you know, with her, this, this style of vampire that she was, she could see through the fabric. And yeah. she was just trying to hide. You know, I was you know coming up with these theories in my head of what's going to play off later in the film that... They never went back to her. And, and, and yeah. as Casey said, she was very prominently shown a couple times. Yeah. she was. You really expected her to be part of the action. 
it's one of those situations where if you show a loaded gun in scene one, it needs to be fired off by scene three. You know, you see the blind girl, something's going to happen. Nope, nothing there. But then it's not her story. You know, maybe she goes off and has some other adventure somewhere else where the cameras are rolling over. Who knows? And who was the guy that uh, paid off the people to harass Kronos? Wasn't he involved with the Durwards? Was he their, like, manservant? Yeah, like their, his foot, yeah. their footman, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I liked Caro, uh, the guy, the, the, the thug played by Ian Hendry. I liked him a lot. Uh, I would have thought that he would have made an awesome vampire hunter. Yeah, he, ha- he had that grittiness to him that Kronos was missing. I, I agree uh. with you. I, I think he would have been more perfect for that role. You're not laughing. Laugh. Please, Carol. Laugh, I'm telling you. I'll be damned if I will. Laugh. And fabulous boots. (laughs) <laughs> that they decided to focus on when he's coming down the stairs. Well, again, that's a Western thing, though. You know, you watch the boots True. come down the dusty road, and then you slowly <laughs> pan up. You know, I, I love this whole scene, except I didn't like how it played out at the end. I just wasn't a big fan of how the sword play was demonstrated. I felt like before we got to the finale, we needed to see more of Kronos waving a sword around to establish that, yes, in fact, he is an expert. Because at the end, when it does start to happen... It's as good as it could be, and it's just not as spectacular. Well, the only other scene you show th- that shows him using a sword is when the villagers attack him in the um, cemetery. And it is kind of cool to see him both using a, a samurai sword and then a, a, an epée or a rapier at the same time. It's interesting to see that he's using a samurai sword or a katana. I thought that was a nice character touch. But yeah, I wanted to see more swordplay. Granted, he can't go around just carving up people just to demonstrate he's a badass. But I, I wanted to see more swordplay, and I felt like the bar would have been a great place to establish he is an expert swordsman. But well, Kara was supposed to be a badass too, so let's have him get a little bit into it. Well, you could have done that, or if this was truly going to be set up as something that would be the intro to a new character that would span a few movies do some sort of pre-credit sequence where he's killing off another vampire. Yeah, go with the James Bond yeah, style. Establish him. Yeah. You could establish him as, you know, this badass swordman that way and just have, you know, the, the, would basically be the very end of another movie. Yeah, the, the James Bond thing. I mean, the, the opening sequence or the beginning credits before he walks around in front of the camera and then shoots the audience um, <laughs> is always him wrapping up his previous adventure. And... It would have been cool to see that. Or bring Carol in for more fighting. I, I, I'm fixated on that character because I love <laughs> that character. I want to see him go fight vampires. Although I love his death scene. I, I, the way he handles his death. I did like that kind of draw it out, a little hammy, yes. a little campy. You know, he's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> he's got this, this bemused <laughs> look on his face like, what, what just happened and why can't I feel any? Oh. <laughs> I, I did like that moment. Uh, but that whole sequence is so showdowny, though, too. The, as he's doing the oh-so-clever nickname calling, Ratface, and then the bartender drops down a little bit. <laughs> fatty, and he drops down a little bit more, and we should do gross, and he's like, oh, you know, 
<laughs> you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to admit something here. When I first saw the bartender, I thought it was the guy from The Hills Have Eyes. Uh, you know, he suffers from the same affliction, from what I understand. Okay, then then, it, then yeah. I don't feel so bad. <laughs> yeah, no, from he has like no body hair. I don't know if he has his fingernails. Um, Michael Berryman doesn't have any fingernails because of what he has. Thank but, you. Uh, I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> but yeah, um, he has such a unique look. Yeah. Anyway, Captain Chronos, Vampire Hunter, still in my top five. I uh, love the music. I love the movie. It's not my number one. It's got some problems. It's got Caroline Monroe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this one, I can fully admit it does have problems. It doesn't change it from taking it out of my number three spot just because I love the superhero-ness of it and whatnot. And I think if I had to have pick one word to describe this movie, it would be swagger. Because <laughs> this movie's got some definite swagger to it. And I think that's yeah, what makes it, it fun. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. The, the, I will agree, the movie does, and Kronos could have used more. Yeah. yeah. The character himself. His tights were too tight. <laughs> <laughs> I I would say it, it's worth a watch, but I wouldn't go out of your way to watch it. So this movie's been adapted a couple of different times. There were uh, a couple of horror movie, well, horror movie magazines have been part of the, the genre, part of fandom for a while. And there was a horror movie magazine called House of Horror printed in the UK, and it was tied into a lot of Hammer stuff. And in that, let's see if I can find a year, 1978, they did a comic book, comic strip style adaptation of Captain Kronos. The cover of the magazine is full color, Kronos on a white horse with, you know, his swords in either hand. He's being surrounded by, I guess, big vampire bats. It's Horse Janssen. You know, he's got the white shirt open down to his belly button, whatever. It is a striking image, and I love uh, that cover. If I can find that original art somewhere, I'd snatch it right the hell up. The comic strip itself, uh, it's written by Steve Moore, artwork by Steve Parkhouse. It's basically a retelling of the movie. Very abbreviated, very quick. Carla doesn't even show up as a prominent character until well, several pages in, and I don't think she's even named right away. So we're really focusing more on uh, Kronos and Horst, and it's, o- it's okay. I-, I don't know if it's something that I would go track down unless you're a completist or you're doing a podcast on Captain Kronos, but uh, it's, it's worth a look uh, if you're a huge fan. But then there were some further adventures of Captain Kronos done as well in the magazine The House of Hammer. And this was done as a three-part comic strip series, issues number one, two, and three. Again, this is another magazine produced over in the UK, also in the late 70s. And it's a completely new story. It takes place after Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. And in it, Gross and uh, Kronos come across a plot uh, involving somebody trying to raise an army of vampires to take over the world. It's very unspecific in terms of what exactly is happening other than there's a guy with vampires doing bad stuff. Carla does show back up in this story. Uh, Carla happens to be working for the guy who's raising all the vampires but didn't really know it uh, at the time. There are some interesting images in it where somehow or other Horst and Kronos get their hands on a huge cross, set it up in the middle of a graveyard and then set it on fire to make the vampires go away. I thought that was kind of a neat image. I don't know how it would play on film if it was ever adapted as a film. In the DVD commentary uh, for Captain Kronos, Clemens does mention that 
nobody really told him that this was being done. And he kind of implies that he has the right to Kronos, not Hammer. And that story came to an end pretty quickly because of that. They found out, or somebody was talking about how they didn't have the rights to do it. So, boom, came to an end. No more stories for Captain Kronos. Until 2011, when Hammer starts putting out some novelizations. And I believe the first one was based on The Resident, which is the newer film. This is produced by Random House over in the UK. Guy Adams is the author, and he signed a deal to do three books. This is the first. The second one's going to be The Hands of the Ripper, which he says in an interview is going to be based uh, modern day. It's a retelling of the story, but contemporary. So don't know how I feel about that. But Kronos is done as a period piece. All the characters are fleshed out even more. Characters that weren't even named in the film are given names and death scenes. Brian Clemens seems to really like this book, and he does the foreword, and you know he, he talks very highly of the book. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a big fan of the book. Uh, there are some structural things that really bug me. I've mentioned on other podcasts that I'm not a huge fan of first-person perspective for storytelling technique for longer works. This is all done in first-person perspective, but it's got multiple characters, and each chapter is only two to four, maybe five pages long. So you're reading along, you know, Dr. Marcus is talking, you know, I've done this, I've done that. Two pages later, it's still using that I did this, I did that voice, but it's a different character altogether. We never get into Cronus's head. It's always Carla, uh, Gross, Dr. Marcus, uh, the preacher, the, fa- the priest of the church, the footman. There's a lot of other characters used to tell the story, which... I guess I do kind of like because we don't want to get into Kronos' head. If we keep away from him, he becomes more of an enigma, more of a Batman type. But it didn't help to uh, make my image of Kronos from the film any more or any less unsympathetic, uncharismatic. Uh, We do find out why Gross is involved in vampire hunting and what his story is. And we spend a lot more time with Carla trying to figure out whether or not she believes that there are vampires anywhere at all and what the hell's going on here. But, again, it's not something that I'm going to go back and reread. I've read it once. I think I'm good. So I'd like to see more Kronos merchandise or material out there. I I just know it'll never happen. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to see more stories involving the characters outside of what we saw in the movie. No, definitely. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we all start a Kickstarter campaign to get some money to Clemens? (laughs) <laughs> there we go. And then he can produce like a TV series or something for us. <laughs> uh, but that's Captain Kronos. Um, still number three on my list. I'm glad Scott finally got a chance to watch one of the most important movies ever made. <laughs> really? I didn't watch Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we got a little bit of feedback this month. But before we get into that, I uh, wanted to mention a couple of things. First, Casey has like a thousand other podcasts that he's involved with. One of them is bloody good horror (laughs) and over at bloody good horror. He posted an article about a lot of hammer films that are coming up on Blu-ray. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Uh, Yeah, that's pretty exciting really for us. Blu-ray and hammer nerds combined. There's been some uh, hammer Blu-rays out in the past, but there's not been anything, any special attention paid to their um, transfer and stuff like that. But this is, uh, there are a few, but yeah, when you think classic hammer, yeah. Yeah, a lot of them, though, are just uh, a pretty simple port of the DVD cut. Well, this one, now the new Hammer, since it's been brought back to us, I think 2007, they're now dedicating to 
going through at least 30 of their movies from their back catalog and doing a full high-def transfer on them, uh, doing a full high-def restoration. They're going to track down um, lost scenes for movies that were cut from the theatrical version and putting in some scenes that were lost. That There's been talk about them actually reaching out to fans and stuff that have some of these extra clips lying around and getting a hold of them that way. They're filming new commentaries with actors that are still around with us today, so they're doing new interviews and whatnot for the extra features. It sounds like it's going to be a pretty fantastic ordeal for at least 30 of the movies, and they've got some great ones on there, you know, like the original Dracula, Frankenstein created woman, the mummy, all sorts of good stuff. Plague of the Zombies, man. Plague, yep. of, the, plague of the Zombies. <laughs> That was one of the big ones they mentioned. So, so it was big for me anyway, yeah. <laughs> now, up until now, I ha- I've avoided – I haven't picked up any – I shouldn't say I avoided. I haven't picked up any of the Hammer movies on Blu-ray because I had a ton of them on DVD, and there wasn't enough there for me to replace them. From what I see, I mean, I've got to start saving my money because I, I think almost every one of these, if they put in as much effort as they're claiming to now, it's going to be worth picking up. Uh, Vampire Circus has an awesome Blu-ray release, dude. yeah. That's that, a, really that is one of the better ones I've heard yeah, of. So. It's got some good stuff on it. But yeah, man, to have all these hit in Blu-ray now, oh, man. And uh, I think it was uh, Christopher, one of our listeners, mentioned that on our Facebook page. Yeah. And that's kind of what spun that off. Uh, I, I can't wait. I Any hammer on Blu-ray, I'll pick up. I'll just side on the scene. That's not true. There's one that I won't pick up, but we'll talk about that here later. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'll pick them all up now. I'm excited, so. Uh, there's also been some online activity. I just want to give a shout-out real quick to somebody who calls himself Twilight Zoner over at the Universal Monster Army forums uh, over on the message boards there. He gave us some nice compliments. He said it was something new to listen to on the way to and from work, and he suggests that anyone even remotely interested in Hammer Horror should basically be anyone. <laughs> they should check out this podcast. Very well done. So I want to give a shout-out to him real quick. And then also at another message board that I hang out with or hang out at over the classic horror film board, somebody who calls himself Steph mentioned uh, a website, monstersfromhell.co.uk, which has a ton of pretty pictures to look at from uh, Hammer, you know, posters, it's a lobby cards, just all sorts of uh, images here. It's a great image gallery. And uh, again, I'll have a link to this website as well as Casey's article over at Bloody Good Horror in the show notes for this week's or this month's episode. Uh, Let's see. This episode is coming out after Christmas. Uh, We talked last time about how we were recording before Christmas and we hoped everybody had a hammer-filled Christmas. I I know I did and and Scott did too. We both got our hands on uh, the Hammer Vault for Christmas. Oh, nice. Yes. Thanks thanks to my uh, wife. She tracked that down for me. What did you think of the Hammer Vault? There is tons of cool stuff, and there's stuff that, uh, you know, me being new to Hammer still, that I found really fascinating and some stuff that, you know, it's like, I wish this stuff was bigger because I'd like to get it framed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's from Titan Books, came out at the end of last year. Uh, this is straight from uh, the Amazon website. Highlights include letters to and from some of the company's stars, pages from Peter Cushing's scrapbooks, pages from the scrapbook of Michael Carreras, pre-production artwork and poster artwork from films that were never made, production designs, and rare and previously unpublished photos. The book was put together by Marcus Hearn, who is a name you should know if you're following a lot of the more recent uh, Hammer uh, 
perspective books that are coming out, he's one of the uh, known or well-known, and with good reason, Hammer Historians. I like the book as well. Now, calling it in the vault is a little misleading because if you have things like the Star Trek vault or the DC Comics or Marvel vault, there are actually things that come out of the book, you know, like recreations of original comic books and things like that. This has none of that. This is a coffee table book, so it doesn't have any pullouts or anything like that. But I'm glad because it means it keeps it all into one spot. You don't lose it. Uh, and really, I don't know if I need a recreation of – well, I do need a recreation of anything written by Cushing, but um, – this is a really solid book. I really enjoyed it as well. I'm finding stuff in here that I've never seen. The uh, author was uh, Marcus Hearn. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was involved in that Hamburg Glamour book as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was put out by Titan, which is talking about all the uh, the starlets of uh, the Hammer Horror Flicks. By and Caroline it was, Monroe. Yes. <laughs> and it was very good. It was very excellent as well. For more reasons than just the writing, but the writing as well was really good too. <laughs> You're just reading it for the articles. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> Another uh, Hammer Christmas gift that I got that actually came from uh, Derek was the British cult cinema Hammer Fantasy and Sci-Fi book. It's written by uh, Bruce uh, Hallenbeck, and uh, it's a, it's a book that. Uh, just covers uh, Hammer's sci-fi books, and I've just started reading it, and so far I found it very fascinating. Tons of uh, production pictures and artwork, um, like lobby cards and stuff, too. So far it's been a, like I said, I just really started reading it here the last couple of days, but what I've read so far I've really liked. This, it's a good time to be a Hammer fan because there's a lot of stuff coming out now with the Blu-rays coming in the books. You know, I mentioned during our discussion of Captain Kronos, the Midnight Marquee Studio Series Hammer book. Uh, Midnight Marquee does a lot of niche genre material. And I, hell, you know what? We're just giving shout-outs to everybody. I want to give a shout-out to them because I ordered this book uh, back at the beginning of December. And I've been waiting for it. No problem. I understand Christmas time, small business, you know, whatever. I finally got a package from them at the beginning of this week, and it was the wrong thing. It was a DVD that I already have of theirs. And I contacted them and, and said, hey, uh, you know, I think there's a problem here. This is what I ordered. They said, no problem. Keep the DVD. <laughs> we'll get the book in the mail to you. And I actually got the book in the mail like two, three days later. Uh, they wrote in there, thanks for being patient, and signed it in the whole bit. So, I mean, shout out to them. Kudos for them for you know, making that right and just being totally cool about it. So. Uh, anything else we want to talk about before we get into the, the voicemail that we got that was awesome? <laughs> <laughs> Can we give another big thanks to Rebecca? Indeed. Yes. For for the intro and the promos that people are starting to hear on other podcasts. Yeah, I want to also give uh, you know a big shout out and thanks to Rebecca for all she did uh, helping me get not only the promos that are being played on other podcasts, but she's also the voice that you heard at the very beginning of the show as an intro to our podcast, which debuted in this episode as well. Big thanks to Rebecca and, and all the uh, help that she provided us. Um, I would also like to, to give a big shout out to Mike uh, from Zombal Towers, which is the Stag Night of the Dead production company, uh, for putting us in contact with Rebecca. Thanks, Mike. We really appreciate that as well. Yeah, she did a great job. Yep. Very, very cool. All right, so we got one voicemail from somebody who calls himself Mr. Shivers. Hey, guys. This is Mr. Shivers. Um, I just came into your show. I discovered that through the Nashy cast, and I decided to subscribe to it. Absolutely love it. 
Um, when I subscribed, I got episode three first, so I've been working my way back up, and I just got done with The Curse of Frankenstein. Absolutely love the episodes. Uh, you guys have re-whetted my appetite to jump back into my old Hammer collections and start looking through those again, and you've uh, reaffirmed my desire to find the seven golden vampires. I keep hearing this name coming up, and it just sounds like good, cheesy fun that we can all enjoy. Uh, one comment I did have, uh, on the positive side, I love the background music using the old Hammer soundtracks to do the shows. Uh, the only thing that concerned me was in episode two, and I think I'm going to call out Scott on this, and I'm going to play it for you here real quick. Now, having said all that, I did like, actually, the way that uh, Frankenstein acted there, because this is his first kill. He's going to try to do something outrageous because he doesn't know how to do it. So he's yelling, Professor, look out, which was so cheesy. You know, somebody that's not accustomed to killing might do something like that. So I I didn't have a problem Mm -hmm. with that. It was the fact that the, the technical problem that took me out of the film that bothered me. So, Scott, right there, uh, I hope that sound clip came through okay. You said uh, you were calling out Peter Cushing for someone who wasn't accustomed to killing and how they just wouldn't do anything, and I'm just wondering uh, where your experience came from. So, uh, Casey, Derek, if I were you, I wouldn't turn your back on him in a dark room. Hey, guys, take care. Can't wait to hear the next episode, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. So, Scott, you have anything to say for yourself, man? Uh, I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just we, a nice Disney podcaster. I never have thoughts like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're listening, Mr. Shivers. I'm, I hope you dig the show uh, and you're still listening and you'll be with us for a while. If you haven't already joined our Facebook page, please join us over there. Uh, again, just look up 1951 Down Place and look for the group page. There's also a like page, so you can like us over there. But if you join the group page... And we've been pretty good about approving the uh, people who try to join us. It's, it's an open group, but we just have to be approved by one of the admins. So we've been pretty good about approving people pretty quickly. And Mr. Shivers, I don't know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> yet. Uh, well, at least we've got all these recordings here to use as evidence if anything ever happens to one of us. <laughs> <laughs> Upon my death, please send copies of this podcast to... <laughs> Captain Kronos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, well, if people want to be part of the show with feedback, how do they do that? Our podcast is down. I don't know the phone number. Our website's down. Oh, Oops. crap. That's, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's funny. So, yeah, uh, listen. Maybe I should have it written on the side of the monitor. <laughs> um, hopefully, by the time this goes out, the website will be back up. Uh, WordPress had some issues. There were some issues that have happened, and our website's down for the moment. But... Head over to our website at 1951downplace.com, and if it's up and running, you can find the phone number that you can use to call us. And you can also email us at podcast at uh, 1951downplace.com as well. We do have a Twitter feed set up, just 1951downplace. We use it more to just make announcements, but you can interact with, with us over there, and like I said, the Facebook page. And as of right now, let me take a look at the poll. It looks like the poll that we have set up to help decide what we're going to review in, is it July? Yes. We have on the board Dracula, Prince of Darkness, X the Unknown, Vampire Circus, and Twins of Evil. And right now, Dracula, Prince of Darkness is in the lead. I think I'm going to go add my vote right now. So how's Foresight of Triangle to go, coming along? Well, you know, it doesn't look like you voted for it yet, sir. 
You know, right. the, odd, the odd thing is, I've actually seen one of those films that uh, has gotten votes. Actually Unknown, right? Well, I'm sorry, two. I've seen two of them. I've also seen Twins of Evil. Oh, that's... <laughs> that's a good one. It, I yeah. enjoyed it, yes. All right, well, I just added my vote. If Scott and Casey haven't done it yet, I'm sure they will by the end. Scott will figure out a way to swing it to four-sided triangle. So it's up to you, <laughs> to listeners, to stop four-sided triangle if you don't want to watch that one with us. Uh, head over there and place your vote, and we'll go from there, figure out what we're going to do there. Next month, we are covering a movie for Casey because his birthday is next month. Yay! We're going to give him the gift of Ingrid Pitt. <laughs> and what a gift it is. <laughs> what movie are we doing? We are doing the Vampire Lovers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to go back a little bit. Now, this is not one with Cushing, right? Cushing is in Twins, but not Vampire Lovers? No, he's in there. He's just in a small part. Okay, okay. So we're going back to Cushing. A little bit of Ingrid Pitt action. Uh, who directed Vampire Lovers? Do you know off the top of your head? I don't know off the top of my head. Maybe I'll just cut that so we don't sound like we don't know what we're talking about. Well, I'm glad there's going to be some Peter Cushing in there because I've had a little Cushing withdrawal since he wasn't in um, Captain Kronos. <laughs> we did manage to bring him in, you know, to discuss him a lot in Captain Kronos, even though he wasn't in it. I think that should be our goal. I think every episode of this podcast, <laughs> even if he's not in the film, we need to mention Peter Cushing in some way. Uh, Roy Ward Baker is the director of The Vampire Lovers. The movie came out in 1970, starring Ingrid Pitt as Carton Miller. And there was a little Karnstein shout-out in Kronos, wasn't there? Yes, and I forgot, I was just thinking that they forgot to bring it up because they did loosely uh, tie Kronos into the Karnstein trilogy. Because the Karnstein trilogy uh, involves uh, vampire lovers, twins of evil, and there's a third one that always slips my mind because it's not very well known. But in this one, though, when, uh, in the big reveal at the end of Car- Captain Kronos, the vampire that we're talking to mentions that she is a Karnstein. Lust for a Vampire was the other one. Yeah, Lust for a Vampire. But she does mention that she was a, a Karnstein, which ties it into this Karnstein trilogy that's made up of the Vampire Lovers and the others. So nice. I, to me, that was exciting. But it, it, it's kind of neat, too, that they made that extra little, even though it's small and fairly insignificant, they made that little mention to tie it into the rest of the Hammer universe. And in the DVD commentary, uh, the historian asks Clemens about that. And he just kind of walks so brushes it off he doesn't really get into it but knowing that clemens watched like as many hammer vampire films as he could getting ready for chronos because he wanted to do something totally different i i can't help but believe that yeah i'm sure the Karnstein mention was intentional or at least yeah. was mentioned because he had just seen these films uh vampire lovers is the first of the three right yes okay uh, uh, guys, I'm looking at the uh, Vampire Lovers on IMDb, which has a great poster for the film, and it looks like I might not be able to watch it because there's a caution not for the mentally immature. <laughs> <laughs> well, crap. <laughs> but, and actually, I think now Scott should watch it, and I think we should uh, have somebody record his reactions as it's happening. I can guarantee you it's going to involve the the scene with the angered pit, a topless angered pit chasing a topless Madeline Smith around the bathtub is going to make you giggle like an idiot because it did me. <laughs> <laughs> I've not wow. seen I've not seen this scene, but I'm already looking forward to it, and I hope it, I can loop it. <laughs> wow, I um okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it has that effect. 
Well, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be next month at the end of February. Thanks for watching Captain Kronos with us, Scott. I'm sorry it didn't live up to, in my mind, what you guys play it out to be. I enjoyed the film. It's just not one of my top five. Don't apologize, man. It's all good. Well, uh, you know, and besides, you're the one that has to live through life, you know, not having Captain Kronos change your life. So That's right. I'm sad for you. <laughs> Right, so we got one voicemail from somebody who calls himself Mr. Shivers. And I guess we'll insert it right here. Uh, he found the podcast for the Nashy cast. He really enjoyed it. He started with the most recent one and is working his way backwards. He loves all the music, but he's concerned for our safety because of what Scott said about what it's like to really kill somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I once shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. <laughs> I, th- I think out of all of us, I need to be more concerned because in comparison to where you're at, Derek, I'm like literally just down the road from Scott. So, But he knows where I live. And I can <laughs> my house. And I have airline tickets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Scott, you have anything to say for yourself, man? Uh, I plead the fifth. 